From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. After living for days with unsafe water, Toledo, Ohio votes to create a Bill of Rights for the source of their drinking water, Lake Erie. People woke up to not only like a water boil alert, this was much worse. They said do not touch the water, that it could make you sick. It meant no drinking it, obviously, but also no showers, no washing your clothes in it, no washing dishes. So no water use whatsoever. Also remembering Dick Wheeler and his search for the migration route of the extinct Great Auk. He wanted to make a 1,500-mile kayak journey northern Newfoundland, a place called Funk Island, all the way down to Buzzards Bay. Well, I've grown up by the sea, and I knew that was almost impossible. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. By a wide margin, the citizens of Toledo, Ohio, have voted to amend the city charter to grant the Lake Erie watershed legal rights. This comes after a toxic algal bloom on the lake fouled the city water supply in August of 2014 and touched off near panic, as CNN reported at the time. Imagine waking up this morning and thinking, can I use my water? Can I take a shower? Can I have some coffee? I don't know. That's the reality, though, for nearly half a million people across northwest Ohio. They're being warned not to use, drink, cook, even boil, amazingly enough, the tap water. Mm -hmm. The advisories come after a dangerous toxin was discovered in a local water treatment plant there, and that led the governor to declare states of emergency across the state. Even the National Guard has been called in to help bring safe water. Toledo has now granted the Lake Erie watershed legal rights, much the way corporations and municipalities have legal rights and standing in court, even though they are not persons. It is meant to allow people to sue on behalf of the lake and its tributaries. The likely targets of such a suit would be sources of pollution, including industrial byproducts and fertilizer runoff from agriculture. There was a battle up to the Ohio Supreme Court to get the Lake Erie Bill of Rights on Toledo's ballot, delaying it past the November elections. Immediately after the special election, a local farming concern filed suit in federal court seeking to invalidate Lake Erie's newfound rights on constitutional grounds. But Lake Erie is not alone, as legal rights for nature are emerging worldwide. Some seek protection for species, such as primates and whales, while others protect rivers and entire ecosystems. Joining us now from Toledo is Tish O'Dell, Ohio community organizer for the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Welcome to Living on Earth, Tish. Thanks for having me, Steve. So please, share with us some of the history of Lake Erie. How long has its battle with pollution been going on? <laughs> well, let's see, my entire life, I believe. I mean, we had problems back um, in the 60s. There were some steps taken, and I know people, they remember Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River catching on fire. And then they go, well, it doesn't catch fire anymore. And my response to that always is, well, that's a pretty low standard, isn't it? Indeed. Now, um, 2014, you had a massive algal bloom in the lake nearby the city of Toledo, and Toledo couldn't use its city water. Tell me that story, please. Yeah, the people woke up to all kinds of warnings and alerts to not only like a water boil alert, something like that. This was much worse. They said, do not touch the water that it could make you sick. So it meant no drinking it, obviously, but also 
no showers, no washing your clothes in it, no washing dishes. So no water use whatsoever. I mean, and there was almost a real panic because unless you've been through that, I mean, you don't know what that's like to not have any water whatsoever to use. And so, of course, people went to the stores and started hoarding all the water, the shelves emptied. You know, they were driving 45 minutes away to try and purchase water because no one knew how long it was going to last. It went for three days. It went on for three days. You just couldn't use any water at all. Mm -hmm. So what sparked the movement to give Lake Erie and its watershed this particular legal standing? Well, back in Toledo in 2014, the people in Toledo, they spent two years from 2014 to 16. The people there living through that were very scared that this was going to happen again because every summer we still have algae blooms. So, you know, even three days after that, they said, okay, it's safe to drink the water. You still have those doubts in your mind. You know, it's like, is it really safe to drink? The government in the two years, what they did, they would throw things like more money you know, taxpayer dollars and say, well, you know, we're going to test the waters more often so that, you know, we can add more chemicals quicker so it doesn't get to this point. Or um, we'll put up signs like at the beaches um, and test it. So if you shouldn't be touching the water, you'll know that. And, you know, they were like, well, this isn't really a solution. And uh, by the way, how important is Lake Erie when we think about uh, the planet's ecosystem? Oh, it's very important. I believe the last statistic I saw, it's over 11 million people. It's their drinking water source. It's the walleye fishing capital of the world. It provides food for people, not just water. But there's tremendous, you know, other life within the lake and the ecosystems that there are different fish, different living things within the lake. So there's a lot at stake here. Folks voting in Toledo on February 26 voted to enact the Lake Erie Watershed Bill of Rights. Uh, charter amendment. Mm -hmm. What exactly is this? What does this say? Well, it's kind of trying to put it into law that we need to look at our relationship with nature differently, that we can no longer look at nature as strictly um, property to be used, exploited, but that we need to look at nature as a living entity that has rights and a lot of people think that's, you know, a crazy thought only because we haven't been brought up in a culture that recognizes that. You know, I tell people, well, we don't think twice about corporations having rights. So it's really not that crazy. Talk to me about where else in the world people have decided to grant the rights of nature and what's happened in those places. Actually, it's funny. The very first rights of nature law was in 2006, which was here in the United States. It was in Pennsylvania. It was in a little borough called Tamaqua Borough, and there was um, sludge um, spreading going on in the community as well as other things and dumping of toxins. And it wasn't like targeting a specific ecosystem like Lake Erie's is, but it was part of um, a bill of rights that they were passing for their community that involved other issues, but they had included in their rights of natural communities. So other countries looked at that and said, that's a good idea. Why don't we like incorporate that? So in Ecuador, the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, we actually helped them draft their new constitution in 2008 and put rights of nature into that constitution. And in 2011, we saw one of the first cases where the river brought a lawsuit against a city government that was doing some project that was changing its flow and depositing a lot of debris. It was the Vilcabamba River. And the court actually ruled in favor of the river and told 
the city, the project had to stop and they had to put the flow back to the way it was before they started. We've also seen this in New Zealand. Uh, they've protected a forest there with using rights of nature. Bolivia has rights of nature. India is rights of nature for the Ganga River. So it, it's interesting that it, it is spreading across the world. There's actually a group in Australia looking at doing this for the Great Barrier Reef. And in Washington state, there's a group currently considering this for the Salish Sea. So as I understand it, this ordinance, this initiative, uh, grants the Lake Erie watershed uh, the rights of nature, which would mean that people could bring lawsuits on its behalf. But what courts could they sue in? I mean, is it in Toledo? Is it in Ohio? Uh, how, how could this now be actually used by people? Right. And that's a problem with our system. It's very difficult in our system for the people who are affected to try to get relief under our system. So that's the other issue with rights of nature that it's looking at and addressing, that the people would have standing because they're acting almost as guardians, like a parent-child type of relationship where the child can't necessarily go to court, and so there's a guardian. So bringing a lawsuit on behalf of the lake for the lake's rights being violated. And again, when you're talking about new um, paradigm-shifting change, you know, and culture-changing things, we don't know exactly how this will all play out, but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't happen. Um, Tish, how do the proponents of this feel uh, the day after the election? They've won. Oh, they were ecstatic because it makes you believe that, you know, if you do keep fighting for what you believe in, that you can actually get there at some point. The people are so used to being defeated all the time. That's one of the things, too. This campaign on February 6th, the opposition created this pack, all of a sudden it popped up. And they just, I mean, did a media blitz. So there was a concerted effort to make sure it didn't pass. And the community group was very grassroots. I mean, they couldn't compete with that whatsoever. I mean, they would have to go out and deliver flyers in the cold, talk to people, and they still won. So they were really, really ecstatic. Tish, what community is next, do you think, to join this in the United States? I don't know. I hope there's lots. That's the other thing about doing something new and different. You kind of like start clearing a path for others to follow, you know, get people to think about it a little differently. Like, yeah, that kind of sounds like a good idea. Maybe we should try that. Tish O'Dell is the Ohio community organizer for the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Thanks so much for taking the time, Tish. Thanks for having me on today. Well, let's take a look beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News at CHN.org and DailyClimate.org. He's on the line now, I believe, in Atlanta, Georgia. You there, Peter? I'm here. How you doing, Steve? Good. And uh, what do you have for us today? Well, you know, a couple of years ago in 2017, China, which had become sort of the receptacle of all of the world's recyclables, announced that it was through with the process of taking it, in the case of the U.S., about 40% of our paper and plastic bailed up, put on a ship across the Pacific, sent halfway around the world because it was actually cheaper to do that than it was to deal with recycling within the United States. I guess the Chinese have gotten pretty tired of that now. Well, not only have they gotten tired, but with all of the uh, economic renaissance in China, they now are producing enough of their own garbage and their own recyclables that they'd rather just focus on what comes out of China. So where is it going if it's not going to China? 
Well, here's part of the problem. Recyclables and garbage produced in cities has in the past gone to landfills. Less and less of that has been happening over the last few decades because urban incinerators have been built in places like Philadelphia, Detroit, Baltimore. They burn city trash in the cities, often in or adjacent to low-income neighborhoods. And what happens is that those incinerators contribute to what is already a long list of respiratory woes, things like asthma in inner cities. Indeed. I mean, if you burn plastic, you get all kinds of nasty chemicals, among them dioxin. Right. And it's hard to sort of apportion out what percentage of inner city respiratory problems are due to incinerators, but it's presumed to be a lot. And the whole situation is kind of an unfortunate, unfunny turn on an old vaudeville joke I first heard from Jimmy Durante years ago. said, we were so poor, we had to take the garbage in. <laughs> hey, Peter, what else do you have for us today? DDT was outlawed in the U.S. in the early 1970s. But get this, there's still evidence that its impacts on breast cancer cases still surfacing, maybe even still growing. One of the longest-lasting studies of its kind in Northern California, study that goes back 60 years of women and their children and their grandchildren. It's now yielding clues about environmental influences on health, partly focusing on breast cancer and including the long-debated role of DDT, as well as other things, endocrine-disrupting chemicals, their impact on breast cancer, and how it all fits into the concept of epigenetics, how environmental health problems can be traced from one generation to the next. Oh, boy. So these chemicals literally will have a history for generations. Yeah. Speaking of that, what do you have from the history vault for us today? On the 40th anniversary, March 16th, 1979, a film called The China Syndrome was released. It had an all-star cast featuring Jane Fonda, Jack Lemmon, and Michael Douglas. Hmm, the China Syndrome. Explain to us the China Syndrome for those who don't know. Well, the China Syndrome is the industry term for what would happen in a serious meltdown at a commercial nuclear plant, that the reactor core would be so hot that it would melt through the Earth's surface and go all the way to China. That's a little bit of hyperbole, but that's how it became known as the China Syndrome. So this movie has some, well, rather interesting parallels, if I recall correctly. Yeah, Jane Fonda's character is a TV reporter. She goes out to do a story at a mythical uh, Southern California nuclear plant. From there, it takes a Hollywood turn. You know, girl meets whistleblowing plant engineer. Plant engineer takes hostages. But what happened was two weeks after this movie was released, a real nuke plant near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, nearly blew its core and questions about nuclear plant safety essentially killed the nuclear power industry as an energy source in this country. And that plant in Pennsylvania, of course, was Three Mile Island. Right. Peter Dykstra's with Environmental Health News at CHN.org and DailyClimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk again real soon. All right, Steve. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you.
As Congress considers a resolution to make a green new deal for the U.S. economy, a German car maker has already positioned itself to show how the transition to climate-friendly technology can make economic sense and create jobs in the U.S. and elsewhere. Volkswagen is the world's second biggest car maker, and it has announced it will stop making gasoline and diesel-powered cars by 2026 and go all electric. It's also planning to build an all-electric vehicle factory in the United States, with cars rolling off that production line as soon as 2022. VW's pivot to electric cars comes on the heels of a 2015 scandal that the company misled the public about the efficiency of their diesel vehicles. Here to talk about Volkswagen's plans is Car Talk blogger and green transportation reporter Jim Matavali. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Jim. Great to be on. So I saw the other day that Volkswagen says that it's going to stop making fossil fuel-powered cars by 2026. How feasible is this? I think it's very feasible. It's where the industry is going. It's not just Volkswagen. It's all automakers moving in this direction. Maybe not quite as quickly, but there's a reason that Volkswagen is making this stark departure and、uh, is leaving behind internal combustion. It has everything to do with their diesel scandal and the diesel settlement. Which is in the U.S. a ten billion dollar settlement, and what's happening is Volkswagen used to be very much、uh, partisan for diesel technology, and they would say, "We can build diesel cars that are so clean, we will never need to go electric." And it certainly appeared that that is what they had done. They released these very clean diesels. A lot of people bought them. Five hundred thousand people, something like that. Except there was a little problem, right? There was a thumb on the scale, an electronic thumb on the scale. Yes, the cars only were within emission limits when they were being tested. On the road, they were something like forty times over the emission limit. The hutzpah of that just amazed me when it happened, and there have been repercussions ever since. Including, I would say, Volkswagen, which was the biggest partisan of diesel, had the biggest role in killing diesel as a technology, not only in the U.S. but globally. I mean, I think all automakers have pivoted to electric because diesel really can't achieve what they were talking about. It's the dirtiest fossil fuel, and、um, they were nowhere close to their emission goals there. And remind us just how big a deal is the company Volkswagen? Well, it's one of the biggest automakers internationally. It's the Volkswagen Group. It also includes Audi and Porsche, and、uh, believe it or not, Bugatti. So it's a big conglomerate. It's the second largest in the world、um, in terms of just number of cars produced. And now, as I understand it, Volkswagen is going to start building electric cars. Yeah, the e-tron is a Audi electric car. It is going to be on the market in a few months. You can take、uh, reservations for it now. And following that, we'll get the Porsche Taycan, and these cars will be serious competition for Tesla. If you look at it, Tesla had a number of years, maybe five or six years, with pretty much no competition in the fields they're in. Nobody was producing. Electric cars with the kind of range at the kind of price they were offering, and certainly with the performance they have, and it was only a matter of time before the big OEM automakers caught up and started offering similar products. That's happening now, and it's one of the challenges Tesla is facing right now. There's still nothing on the market that's comparable to the Tesla Model Three or the Model S or the Model X, but those are all coming. 
I understand that they're going to open a car factory uh, for these electric cars. Where and, and, and how many jobs would it create? I think it's something like a thousand jobs. It's going to be in Chattanooga where they have their car plant now. It's a very high volume plant and they're going to be turning these out by 2020. I believe the cars were delayed by a few months, but next year they're definitely going to be producing a small hatchback there. But there's a number of models that are in the pipeline, including a crossover SUV and a version of the uh, microbus. Jim, the, the cars that Volkswagen Group is putting forward uh, initially, I imagine they're going to go for a very fancy price tag. But my German is, is wobbly, but I believe Volkswagen means essentially a people's car. So what are they going to make that many people can afford to purchase? Well, the first car that Volkswagen itself is producing is a small hatchback. And they said they're going to produce them at half the price of Tesla. I think that's probably a little exaggerated. It's probably going to be more like maybe two-thirds the price of a Tesla. But they're going to be cheaper than the Tesla. And the Volkswagen has said that it's going to be all electric. It's going to produce something like 27 models on one platform. This is a serious, big commitment to electric, which would have never happened if they hadn't been caught with their diesel uh, pants down. And how much money is the Volkswagen Group investing in electric cars for this conversion? Do you know? I've heard uh, several billion dollars, actually uh, $30 billion in electromobility as a whole. So it's a big, big push. It's the commitment by the automaker. They are all in on electric cars. And it's not just demand in the U.S. There's a number of countries in Europe that are talking about going all electric, of not even allowing the sale of uh, internal combustion cars. France is an example of this. And already in Europe, a lot of inner cities are reserved for electric mobility only. So the handwriting is on the wall in Europe. I think uh, the whole world's going this way. Jim, before you go, tell me, how do you imagine the future of motor vehicles will look like? I think the future of vehicles is electric, connected, autonomous, and we're going to be getting around in sort of cars that are not so much personally owned as shared. The acronym for this is ACES. So it's Autonomous, Connected, Electric, and Shared. And that's where we're headed. All vehicles will be like that. Nobody doubts this. Every automaker in the world thinks we're headed this way. So I think ACES is pretty much where we're going. So if it's going to be ACES for the electric car, to twist the analogy, the Snake Eyes is coming up for the internal combustion engine? I think so. It's it, The timeline of it is very uh, hard to predict. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. It may not even happen in, in this decade. It, it may be till 2030 or after that. To talk about when we get to the point where people can sit in the back of the car and it can deliver you somewhere, everybody expects that autonomy will look like that. That point is not that close. We have a lot to work out before that happens, both in technology, regulation, insurance, all those things. But we're going to end up there. And before then? Before then, we'll have a mix of electric and conventional internal combustion cars on the road. And we'll have more and more autonomy in the cars. Right now, a number of automakers will let you uh, have the car be pretty much autopiloted on the highway. And I would say another thing that we're seeing is, say, 5G connectivity in the car. So 
instead of bringing your car in for an update, it's going to be done over the air. And Tesla pioneered that, but the uh, entire industry has adopted it. So that's another part of what we're seeing. But a mix of cars for the next 10 years on the road, we're not going to be all ACES cars for quite a while. Jim Matavali blogs for NPR's Car Talk, and he's a freelance environmental journalist. Jim, thanks for taking the time again today. It was great to be on. Just ahead, grooming for spring mating season can start early for egrets in Florida, but first this note on emerging science from Ainsley O'Neill. Deformed wing virus has resulted in the deaths of billions of bees around the world. As the name indicates, the virus gives bees shrunken, misshapen wings, which prevents them from flying and essentially cuts their lifespans in half. Although the parasitic mite that causes the virus is no more than two millimeters in length, it can take down an entire hive by infecting just one bee that transmits the virus to its hive mates. Even worse, if a sick bee visits a flower, it can transfer the disease to any other bees that come in contact with that plant in the future. But now, a team of scientists has discovered an unexpected potential cure, mushrooms. After seeing that bees tend to drink water droplets from fungi, a team of scientists theorized that the bees might be doing more than just hydrating. Amado and reishi mushrooms have both been used in traditional medicines, but this is the first time researchers have investigated their antiviral properties as a potential cure for deformed wing virus. When bees consumed mushroom extracts in lab experiments, they had an 800-fold decrease in the levels of the deformed wing virus in their systems. Even in difficult-to-control field experiments, scientists observed an 80-fold reduction in the virus levels after treating hives with the reishi extract. Now these scientists are scaling up their experiment by conducting tests in hundreds of beehives throughout the state of Oregon. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. Long-legged egrets make their living fishing in shallow waters from Washington State through Central America. They are year-round residents in the Gulf states, including Florida, where Living on Earth's explorer-in-residence Mark Seth Lender found a great egret getting ready for an early spring. In the leafless somnambulance of winter, the tree sways in the wind and has not recognized that by all the other purposes of life, it is already spring. The warmth that should be early April has arrived a month too soon. The order of disorder rules. White as the snow that never falls here, white as the clouds that pillow on the sky, white as sequins sewn to the wedding suit of some mysterious groom, now Great Egret has arrived and found a place of standing. The quills that descend from his back are falling water. The color of his face is emeralds of high degree. His bill is electrum. Canary yellow diamonds are his eyes. He is radiance. He is the glow that displays upon the sunrise sky. 
Great egret bows. The long neck reaches down. The long bill taps sharply on the branches below the branch where he stands to show how he will find substance for the nest, how he will strike the water to capture fish. He stretches towards the blue above him to show the way he will defend eggs, then young, and challenge all intruders and unwanted suitors. He strops the feathers and the long decorating quills vibrating along his sides to show by his perfection how fit he is for the tasks he promises to perform. He sways side to side, a demonstration that his balance is unshakable. He looks straight and long, taking the parallax view of any danger lurking near or far. And just in case you think all this is rote, that he has no idea what it's all about and who it's all for, when the dance is done, like any single dancing son alone at a high school prom, he looks all around as casually as possible so that you'd hardly notice it. A glance here, a glance there, in hope that at the very least, just one of the girls was watching. Living on Earth's Explorer in Residence, Mark Seth Lender. up, a remembrance of educator and conservationist Dick Wheeler and his adventure traveling the migration route of the now-extinct Great Auk. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Great auks were the closest creatures the Northern Hemisphere once had to penguins. Sadly, these flightless birds were plundered out of existence in the 19th century. To tell the story of the great auk, conservationist Richard Wheeler once paddled a kayak from the far north of Labrador, Canada, to Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and storyteller J. O. Callahan made a dramatic interpretation we'll hear in just a moment. We originally broadcast our segment with Dick Wheeler and J. O. Callahan back in 1999. We're bringing it to you again today because Dick Wheeler recently died at 88, and we thought this tale was a most fitting way to honor this man, whom Time Magazine once named a hero for the planet. Here's that original recording of the story of the Great Auk when Jail Callahan and Dick Wheeler join me in the studio. Hey, hey, Dick Wheeler here. Dick Wheeler, I want to talk to you. I'm the Great Auk Man. I got a call one day from Dick Wheeler. I didn't know Dick. Said it heard a sea story of mine on the radio, wanted to talk to me about a journey. He wanted to make a 1,500-mile kayak journey from northern Newfoundland, a place called Funk Island, all the way down to Buzzards Bay. Well, I've grown up by the sea, and I knew that was almost impossible. (laughs) 
That's J.O. Callahan telling the story of one man's odyssey to follow the migratory route of a now extinct seabird. Dick Wheeler grew up on the sea in Marshfield, Massachusetts. The winter he was 10 years old, he built a kayak with his brothers and his father. And though his life would take him in many directions, to college, to the Navy, to a lifelong career as an English teacher, building that kayak planted in him a dream he would never forget, a long paddle at sea. A half century later, at 60 years of age, Dick Wheeler was in his kitchen one night, dinner for his wife simmering on the stove, when he picked up a book he hadn't read in years. It was called The Great Auk, and it was about a bird of the same name. Somewhere over 50 million years, a decision was made inside the species of the great auk not to have hollow bones. It gave up flight in the air. The decision was for solid, dense bones, so it could be a great plunge diver. With the solid bones, it could plunge straight down the sea 100 feet. That's a long way down. But if it needed two, 300 feet, 400 feet, 1,000 feet, it could soar under the sea with the grace of an eagle and the ease of an eight-year-old girl in a swing. It was a magnificent bird and smart. That dinner never got cooked. Instead, Dick Wheeler had already put in for the adventure of his life, a paddle tracking the great auk's migratory journey south. His wife, Sandra, said simply, keep the land on your right. That began two years of planning and training for his trip. Along the way, Dick learned of storyteller Jay O'Callaghan. He tracked him down and asked if he would help tell the story. Dick Wheeler and Jay O'Callaghan joined us in our studio to tell and perform the story of Dick's remarkable journey. Dick told me more about the bird that inspired him. Probably the best diving bird the Northern Hemisphere has ever seen, perhaps in the world. It stood about two feet tall, mated for life, they laid just one egg a year, an enormous egg. They existed in such numbers that the early ship's captains, who were used to an abundance that we've never seen, became very emotional in their logs. There were so many of these birds that say, no matter how many we kill, there'll always be more. And they filled boats with them, and then they filled boats with their eggs, and then they uh, put their flesh into barrels, and then New England fishermen went up and took them and cut their breasts out for bait for codfish. And the final blow, or close to the final blow, came when uh, the mattress industries that were developing in the United States and Nova Scotia needed feathers, and having depleted the eider duck population, someone said, let's go out to Funk Island and get those uh, great auks. So they did, and they got them all. The first leg of Dick Wheeler's journey was a treacherous 40-mile paddle across the open ocean in from Funk Island, one of the great auk summer breeding colonies. Then he headed south down the coast of Newfoundland in his 17-foot kayak nicknamed Auki. Upon her bow, he'd mounted a figurehead of the great auk he'd carved and painted himself. Storyteller J. O'Callaghan. Paddle on the left side, paddle on the right, paddle up a wave and down the other side. Paddle on the left side, paddle on the right, paddle up a wave and down the other side. We're doing the dream, Aki, we're doing the dream. Look at that guillemots all around us. Beep, 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 beep. Well, Aki, I'm tired. We're going to put in right here. Look at that fisherman. Chin looks like a doorknob. Looks like he's waiting for us. Hey, bye. You're the one that come in from the punks, boy. 
How do you know that? Everyone in Newfoundland knows about you, boy. We heard about you in a fishing radio. You come all the way into the function netting. I wouldn't go across the harbour netting, boy. How about some tea? Hey! When you're 60, someone calls you boy, makes you feel good. We went up to his house and, ah, oh, kitchen smelled good. Children gathered around as if I was a great hawk and I sat down, had my tea, and then the woman of the house opened the oven, took out a fresh loaf of bread, gave me a knife, I sliced it, steam came out, and oh, I put potted bear jam. I love potted bear jam. Well, they kept looking at me, so I ate the whole loaf. And the woman of the house set down a whole plate of cod cheeks. Big treat up there, ate that and said, I can't move. She said, I would hope not, not before the caribou steaks. Two steaks? I said, I can't set the tent up now. Of course you won't, you'll be sleeping in the bedroom. You can't do that, it's your bedroom. My husband and I love to sleep in the kitchen floor. Get in there. I call this aggressive hospitality. So the next morning, dawn up, Shin said, how far are you going today? I'm still tired, maybe 10, 15 miles. Give, give me a chart, give me a chart, boy, and I'm going to make a little X at a tickle. A tickle is a narrow opening in the rocks. You put in a tickle, you smash up on the surf. Here you go, now, boy, tell them we shouldn't be catching the babies. What? Tell them we shouldn't be catching the babies. They're going to listen to you. Who's catching babies? We're catching the baby codfish is what I'm talking about. Why catching the baby fish? Because the government lets us. These are cold waters up here. It takes six or seven years for a cod to grow up, or they don't grow up anymore. Don't tell me to stop fishing. I got the family right here. If I stop fishing, everyone's going to say I'm crazy. And they'll keep fishing. But we shouldn't be catching the babies. Now tell them, please, they'll listen to you. Dick, this is a recurring theme through your trip. Don't catch the babies. The best illustration of that is uh, a blackboard that I saw in, in one of the ports on the way down where they had uh, painted on a, a, over a blackboard, we will accept no cod shorter than 24 inches. 24 inches had been crossed out, 23 inches written in. 23 had been crossed out. Then they had written in 22 and crossed that out. And when I got to the port, they were down to 19 inches. And a 19-inch cod is a very small fish. They're a third of the fish's head. And in fact, that's the reason they stopped the offshore fishery. The mechanical filleting machines couldn't handle the small cod, so they, they stopped the fishery. Dick Wheeler's trip had started out with a straightforward goal, to use the kayak as a symbol for the great auk and bring recognition to other seabirds. But it was quickly turning into a very literal, very immediate story about an entirely different species, fish, that were not yet extinct, but in trouble. As Dick moved south and crossed the border into Maine, he found that not everyone saw the problem in the same way. Aki, we're in Maine. Maine, I love Maine. Aki, smell that seaweed. My second home, Aki. Ho-ho, pedal on the left side. Aki, going to go right up there. Bar Harbor. Going to go up and have a cup of coffee at that diner. Well, I went up, and this is late October, but there are tourists all over. I could tell. They're dressed right out of the catalogs. Went into a diner, and I, I felt uncomfortable. Too big for the place. Place is jammed. Sat down to the counter. A cup of coffee, please. And 
It's a prosperous looking couple in their late 50s beside me. The man had the half glasses. He was reading the Times. and His wife had the New Yorker. I couldn't resist. I tapped half glasses on the shoulder and I said, I noticed the headline on the Times says storm wrecks havoc with environment. I always thought storms are part of the environment. Half glasses looked over his glasses. I thought it was funny. Then the three of us looked up at CNN, the television. There was an economics professor. We have to make choices, economic choices. For instance, if you're the whaling industry and you take a 15% profit for three years, the whales are gone. If you take a 10% profit for three years, there's a sustainable yield. What do you take? I said to half glasses, well, of course you take 10%. He said, no, you take 15% for three years, then you reinvest the capital elsewhere. And the whales are gone. I hit the coffee cup and smashed, so I got out of there. So I paddled on, said, Aki, look at, look at that house, that's our savior. All the lights going on that big house, it's a family. Come for the weekend in Maine, maybe they'll let us tent out in the, the front yard. <laughs> so I knocked on the door, a great big red-headed fellow opened. I said, I'm sorry to bother you, I'm Dick Wheeler. Can, uh, can I tent out in the front yard? I'm doing 1,500 miles and, and a kayak. He said, come on in, Rick, come on in, Rick. Step on the newspaper, will you? Everyone's watching the game and they'll be right in. I got a fellow, Rick, he's doing 15 miles in a kayak, 1,500, whatever, Rick, whatever. Listen, Rick, we got to take care of one another. I'd be worried about you with a hard frost, so uh, use the phone. The phone? Yeah, I'll call the motel, Rick. I guess one of the things the trip taught me was uh, we have a different meaning for hospitality in America. You could just drift ashore on a log in Newfoundland and live in that place forever. Uh, they will truly give you the shirt off their back if it's the last shirt they have. Uh, America is quite different, and I, uh, I hadn't—I I always thought of us as a hospitable a culture, but uh, we fail if we compare ourselves to Newfoundland. And our sense of natural capital? This fellow said to you, well, if we use it up, we'll invest the profits elsewhere. What does it matter? Oh, I think that's, that's very true. We see that all the time. Uh, we, uh, in our own fishing industry, when we deplete one resource, we look around for something that uh, is abundant. You'll hear people say, well, we've fished out the cod. Uh, there are more mackerel out there than we'll ever be able to catch. Let's go get them. And you hear people say, well, when we fished out the sea, we'll just learn to farm them. We did it on the land and we'll learn to do it on, uh, w with fish. We need to realize that the National Marine Fisheries Service it has a lot of wonderful scientists in it, good, good people. But uh, the fact is that it comes under the Department of Commerce. Uh, so the overall responsibility is to catch more fish, create more jobs, and find more markets for, for more. When the government brings out all the numbers about the catches and this is and that... How does that resonate with you once you've been out on the water for this period of time? Does all the statistics mean anything when you ride the waves in a in a 17-foot-long boat? The trip has convinced me that, that the problem is not an economic problem, as most people see it, but that it is a spiritual problem in the sense that um, the relationship we have with the ocean is tragically flawed. 
the fact that we we think it was put here for us, and uh, which links into the uh, feeling that the best of us will get the most of what was put here for us. So there's some deep-seated spiritual uh, values that are contributing to this that need to change over time, and it will take time. Uh, It's going to take a dramatic change, uh, and it will not come probably until there has been a, a collapse. says his spiritual awakening is one part of his trip he had a hard time expressing himself. It's one of the parts he most needed a storyteller for. It's a cold November day, but all we have to do is finish up. No more excitement. Pedal on the left side, pedal on the right. Be done in ten days, Aki. Beep, 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 beep. Aki, did you hear some guillemots? <laughs> Thought I heard guillemots. Oh, guess not. Pedal on the left side, pedal on the right. Beep, 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 beep. Where are they, Augie? <laughs> Sounds like a, a razor bill. There's nothing here, Augie. Mmm, my dear child, we caught the spawn and fish. Tell them they're not coming back. Augie. Oh, no, oh, no, come on, let's finish it up, Augie. Work up a sweat, Augie. So you can tear me apart. Come on, Augie, pedal on the left side. Listen, Dick, no. Listen, my honey, no. Listen, Dick, no, listen. All right, all right, all right. Shh. Tell them. Tell them I cannot do it anymore. Shh. Tell them I cannot cleanse myself as quickly as they foul me. Tell them I cannot replenish all they rip from my womb. Tell them. Portland, Maine to Cape Cod was another 120 miles. And when Dick Wheeler finally paddled through the Cape Cod Canal, there were more than 100 people awaiting his landing. November 16th, Hockey, Cape Cod Canal. That's Sandra. Look at all these people. Hey, <laughs> look at all these people. All of you people came to <laughs> see me come in. Thanks. You don't know what it meant to me. You gave me the courage to tell you what happened. And now I'm tired. I'm headed home. Dick Wheeler turned, and eight of us, without thinking, picked up Aki, put Aki in the back of the pickup truck. Sandra was driving, so we watched Dick, and he was going to the passenger side, and he walked with that wonderful rhythm of the great auk. He got in, slammed the door, 
They drove off, and Dick rolled down the window. He was looking towards the sea. I really didn't see it as if I was being tested by the ocean itself. You know, is this guy for real or is he a, is he a faker? And uh, and the way the the wind went up, you could almost hear a click as the as the wind went up uh, each notch. And once I got through that barrier, it was almost as if I was in visiting another world each day and then coming ashore into the world that I'd grown up in. So I was getting different understandings that uh, really changed me forever. Once he completed his trip in November of 1991, Dick Wheeler took his message to hundreds of classrooms throughout the U.S. and Canada. Dick taught about the ocean and reminded people that even things that seem abundant can be very fragile. A fine legacy for a man who is now gone, but thanks to his life of commitment, is not forgotten. J.L. Callahan's story, The Spirit of the Great Auk, is available from Artana Productions in Marshfield, Massachusetts. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Delilah Bethel, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and on Google Play. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRI Public Radio International.